Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Prayers of King David. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Prayer for the King. Let's begin by reading the entire psalm, Psalm 20. It begins to the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. You know, at first glance, when reading this psalm, one might be forgiven in thinking it's a simple psalm of blessing. I mean, after all, the words, may the Lord and may he, referring to the Lord, and then adding the words of blessing, it seems like this is a very encouraging psalm in which David writes that he wants the people under his kingship to have the Lord answer all of their prayers. And that would make sense until we come to verse 6, in which we are told that the Lord saves his anointed and that he hears him from heaven. And that's a prayer for the king. And so at first glance, we might think that we've moved from wishing a blessing on all of God's people to wishing a blessing onto the king. But then in the last words, we read, O Lord, save the king. And then there's another feature in this psalm, and it's connected with the next psalm, that is Psalm 21. In Psalm 21, we read a psalm which is really all about God's blessing for King David. And so taking all this evidence together, both the internal words and the context of Psalm 20, and then the words of the next psalm were led to an interesting conclusion. Psalm 20, as well as 21, are royal psalms. All the words, may the Lord bless, are directed to God's people who are called upon to pray for King David. And that, once we realize it, leaves many Bible readers puzzling. I mean, what in the world are we to make of such a psalm? Where's the point of application? You know, at first glance, this seems to be a very self-serving prayer in which the king of the nation is teaching the nation to pray for him. And so what do we make of this strange psalm? I mean, should we, knowing that David's a forerunner of the Messiah, knowing that the psalm says that the Lord saves his anointed or his Messiah, should we take that to mean that we as Christians should use this prayer to pray for Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham? And the answer to that is most assuredly not, because nowhere are Christians told to pray for the glorified Jesus. And most assuredly, we're not told to pray that according to verse 3 in this psalm, that the Lord would regard the burnt sacrifices of Jesus, our Messiah, with favor. I mean, none of that would make any sense if we simply applied it all to Jesus. So we can say with assurance that the point of application has nothing to do with asking the Father to bless the Son. But we're struggling as to what to do with this psalm. So let's step back for a moment and ask a more basic question. Some critics of the Bible wonder how David could compose a psalm in which God's people are to sing it and remember to pray for him. Well, that seems self-serving, even arrogant. But we need to rethink that. See, the king is aware that he has a responsibility. He's appointed by God as the head or the leader of God's people, the nation of Israel. 
And the king's aware that if he ceases to be a godly king, or if he harbors rebellion against God in his heart, or if he sins, or if sin festers inside of him, or if he becomes inflated with his own power and then abuses it, the entire nation will suffer. The king knows how important it is to be a godly king. And furthermore, both David and then later Solomon as well often play the office of a teacher in Israel, teaching people wisdom and faithfulness to God. What then happens if the king is not godly? And hence, it's a very important thing for God's people to pray fervently for their king. Both their national life and their individual lives depend on the king for security, for emphasizing godliness in the nation, for peace, for punishment of the wicked, and the commending of righteousness, that is, for justice. And we think of this psalm in this fashion, those of us who seek to make application might very well think of the injunction found in, you know, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, and then it adds, for kings and for all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, in truth, there's a great deal of distance between a modern-day prime minister or president or chancellor or whatever kind of leader exists. For one, a great many of us live in secular countries where the leader of our country is not like King David at all. The leader of our country has not committed himself or herself to be faithful to the covenant of the Lord. But according to 1 Timothy, we're to pray for them nonetheless, realizing that the decisions they make And the directions in which they lead our country has a great deal to do with whether we can lead a peaceful and quiet life, or whether we can practice our faith freely, or whether we can share the gospel with others free of persecution and legal reprisals. And so if we were to pray for pagan leaders of our nation, then how much more should ancient Israel have been praying for the king of their nation? Because their nation, Israel, was called upon to uphold the law of God. There's another point of application. Pastors or elders or men who teach and preach the Word of God and give oversight to local congregations should be passionately prayed for. I mean, what happens when pastors become ungodly? What happens when they become discouraged? How is that an advantage for anyone? What happens if your pastor becomes prayerless? What happens if they lead a local church in ways that are not in keeping with the Scripture? What happens then? And so seen rightly, Psalm 20, although it is a royal psalm written by David, instructing God's people to pray for King David, well, has a great many points of application. We must know that key leadership, especially in Christian circles, local or national, or even international, is essential. We should know how to pray for those in leadership. We should view it as a mandate. Well, very good. I hope we can come to see why Psalm 20 is an important psalm. So let's dig into the details and see what we can learn about praying for key Christian leaders. So first, let's notice that we can divide this psalm into three sections. The first section, verses 1 to 5, is a prayer for the king, or if you will, a kind of pattern of how to pray for a leader. Then the second section, verses 6 to 8, is an expression of assurance that God will indeed answer our prayer. And then third, in the third section, just one verse, verse 9, is the final desire that God would save the king. So let's start with the beginning. What shall we pray? And so we begin by examining the first five verses. And we immediately notice that the word may, as in may the Lord, or may he, that word may, well, it's repeated six times. 
So we might say that there are six requests here, six things that we should pray for. Notice also that the word and is repeated four times. So we might add the six and the four together and say there are 10 requests here, but I'm going to argue that there are only six prayers that are offered. But here, when we examine the text closely, we're going to find that the first two mays in verse one actually speak of one request. So I think we do well to reduce the number of requests in this psalm to five, and that's how we'll take them. So let's begin. Five requests that David wants his people to pray for when they pray for the king. The first in verse one, and this is a prayer for protection. For the king, because of his office and position, is always in danger, and people should know that. Verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, we might think of the welfare of the king on the day of a major battle. The enemies know that if they kill the king, Israel will be greatly harmed, more so than if they kill anyone else. But this is not the only time when the king is specifically in danger. He also has political enemies. We know that during the time of David, there was Absalom, David's own son. Absalom sought to wrest the crown from his father, and he led the nation into civil war. Peace was gone. Hatred between people was excited everywhere. And there would have been other challenges to the kingship of David as well. People should be praying for stability. And so they should be praying that when the king prays to God in the day of danger, Perhaps the rest of the faithful people of God are not aware of the dangers the king is facing, but they need to be praying for his protection. God, when the king prays for protection, would you hear the king's prayer? May the God of Jacob, the God who made a covenant with Jacob and from him made the people of Israel, may he protect our king in the day of great peril. It seems to me this is a good way also to pray for your pastor. Just simply say, Lord, I don't know the dangers my pastor faces, but I pray that when he cries out to you in distress and seeks help from your hand, listen to his voice and deliver him from his troubles. It's no secret that in today's society, we're inundated with a chorus of voices trying to shape our lives. They seek to influence our purchases, entertainment, political stance, moral standards, and daily activities. And if we try to bend to them all, we'll lead diffused, dizzy lives. So who is the umpire of life? Well, God is. His voice matters above all others. And Back to the Bible Canada exists to emphasize the centrality of God's voice, God's Word. That is why this month we're offering a booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. This booklet does not promote defiance or apathy, but is a call to humbly submit to the voice of God. So to request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate because supplies are limited. The second prayer for the king, you know, in some ways sounds very much like the first prayer, that is, the prayer that God would protect the king. Verse 2 says, May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. But here what's different is that the help that the king receives in times of distress would come from the sanctuary or even from the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that was then in Jerusalem. Now, this requires some explanation. 
You know, on numerous occasions in the book of Deuteronomy that was written during the wilderness wanderings of Israel, before Israel was in the promised land, Deuteronomy makes mention of the place that God would choose. You know, from before the time Israel entered the promised land, Israel is made aware that God's going to choose a place where he's going to be worshipped and where his presence would be made known to the nation. Eventually, the name of that place becomes clear. It's Jerusalem. That's where the tabernacle came to rest, and eventually that's where the temple would be built. And that's where the glory of God would be made known. It was there that the religion of Israel would be established. Sacrifices were only to be offered in that one place and nowhere else. The request that when God answers the prayers of the king, that the answer would come from the sanctuary in Jerusalem, well, that really is the prayer, that it would be clear to all Israel that God speaks answers and delivers his king according to his covenant, according to his commands and promises and directions that he gives to his people. Israel was to be under no illusion but that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of Moses had spoken and not some idol or some false vision of the one true God. See, when you answer the king's prayer, O Lord, make it clear to all of us that the answer came from you, not from false gods or, you know, some of the false views of God that is prevalent among the nations or the false teachers. May the answer confirm your word and your covenant. Again, that's a good prayer for us today. Oh, Lord, protect the Christian leaders you have given. And when you do it, make it plain that you're the God of the Bible who has revealed himself in eternal truth. Now, the third prayer. And this is in regard to the king's faithfulness to the worship ritual in Jerusalem. Verse 3. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. See, the assumption here is that David would be faithful to his religious obligations. He was to offer his sacrifices in keeping with the law Moses had established. That is, the assumption is that David is devoted to the commands of God around worship. And there's more. The idea that God would remember the offerings that David would bring is the prayer that God would look with favor on David's offering. See, the danger here, of course, is the danger that David might live in hypocrisy. It's the picture of the worshiper of God who only performs outward rituals. See, in that case, he allows sin to fester inside of himself and doesn't do anything about him while he approaches the altar. So instead of that, it's important for the people of God to pray that David's inward heart would be in keeping with his obligations at worship. See, that also is an appropriate prayer. The great danger of all religious leaders is that there comes a time in their lives when the fire for God is mostly cold now, but ministry skill remains. The pastor performs his obligations admirably, but his heart is no longer passionate towards God. And that can happen. And wise people know it, and they pray earnestly to God that it would not take place in their leader. Next prayer, number four. And let's read this one first and then comment on it. Verse 4 says, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Well, now look, God will not grant the king's desire of his heart if those desires are out of keeping with God's holiness. It also means that the people believe that the desires of the king are in accord with the best for the nation. And what the king longs for are those things that will bless his nation and not curse it. You know, when Idi Amin became the dictator of Uganda, everything changed. A nation once referred to as the Pearl of Africa or the Jewel of Africa now was governed by a madman who robbed the nation of its prosperity. 
put the money in his own pockets. I would argue that nation has never fully recovered. How different it is when a leader wants the good of the nation, the good of the country, and for Christians today, governed by godly leaders. How good is it when your pastor earnestly seeks God to do that which is pleasing to God and the best for the people? Indeed, then may God give him exactly what his heart desires. Finally, the fifth prayer, and this is the prayer that in the end, God is glorified, the King is saved, and all God's people know it. It's verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You know, the banners that are mentioned here are the victory banners. When when the king is successful, he leads a national celebration. Now, those are the things that God's people should be praying for. They should not neglect extra prayers for their leaders. And the question to you, my dear Christian friend, who is my listener today, do you faithfully and passionately pray for your pastor and your other Christian leaders? Please don't neglect this. But does it matter that we pray? Well, yes, it does. Look again at verses 6 to 8. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Salvation of the anointed is not here meant as salvation from sin, but salvation from all those who seek to kill the king. And and here a contrast is made between those who trust in chariots and horses as opposed to those who trust in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. You know, the tragic part of this passage is what actually happened after King David. So let's do a bit of a Bible study, shall we? First of all, it was Moses who laid down the law for future kings, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. It says, only he, that is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And so if there are horses and chariots, the future king is required to keep them at a minimum, and David understood this. He was teaching God's people to pray for the king, and as they prayed, they were to rejoice that there were those who trusted in the multiplicity of their horses and chariots, but that victory did not come in that way. You know, in a certain way, the king was always to remain vulnerable in Israel, always dependent on God to deliver him in the day of trouble. But after David came Solomon, he was initially faithful, but increasingly over time, his heart was drawn in a different direction. You know, 1 Kings 26 says, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. So that was a breaking of the law of God. But that's not the end of it. 1 Kings tells us that he went to Egypt to procure chariots and horses. Of course, Solomon did a great deal of other things that were displeasing to God. But I mention the matter of chariots because this is a part of the prayer for the king. They are to pray that the king remain vulnerable and dependent on God and that God would save him. In the case of Solomon, he didn't do that. Now, we can't know if faithful people were praying for Solomon. I mean, furthermore, if we were to argue they weren't, Solomon isn't absolved because of his sin. But we do know that because of Solomon's sin, Israel was led into idolatry. The nation eventually divided as a result of a serious political crisis. Eventually, the northern kingdom was destroyed. The southern kingdom also suffered serious loss, all because one king after another no longer served God. You know, I have seen that so much is dependent on leadership. So much is dependent on the king looking to God to save him in the day of trouble. We come now to the third small section of this psalm, and it's in verse 9. 
O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The plea at the end is the sum of all that has been said. God, save the king. Save him in battle. Save him when he's tempted. Save him when he's in danger that his love of God is growing cold. And when he's in danger of simply ignoring your commands, God, save the king from all the things that lead his life into ruin. Have mercy on the king, O God. And then with that comes another prayer. And this is the prayer that is not directed towards the king, but it's directed to God. May God answer us when we call to you to safeguard the leadership that we need for peace and prosperity. Back to our point of application. Pray for Christian leaders that they remain biblical, God-centered, resisting of temptation, focused on the mission, whose passion towards God never changes. Over the years, Christian leaders in different eras have risen to bring you know, the church back to the Savior and his gospel. Consider the contrast between two men. Pope Leo X is not remembered for his lecherous activities, his love of carnivals, his laughing at sheer buffoonery. He's not remembered for his love of money and his lavish spending on his own pleasures. He's remembered as the Pope who did everything that he could to condemn Martin Luther. On the other hand, Luther, the German monk, is remembered as the leader who demanded that the church return to the gospel. You see what leadership does? It changes everything. Pray that God gives us leadership that follows him and that brings glory to God and brings good to his people. Thanks so much, John. You know, we know the expression, all things rise and fall on leadership, but but how do we as Christians guard ourselves from a walk, a spiritual walk even, based solely on the rise and fall of a church leader? Yeah, that's such a good question. And, you know, Ben, I was just going to say what you've already said. If so many things do rise and fall on leadership, as a pastor over many years, and I'm sure you can say this as well, the amount of people um, who simply said, you know, whatever you say, that's what I believe. I mean, that often frightened me. So the, the necessity for all of us to be individual Bible readers, to train ourselves by the truths of God, to actually learn methods of solid Bible study and utilize them, and to learn and be learners from Scripture on our own, this is so necessary. And uh, it will, you know, it will take us away from a great deal of error. But on the other hand, let me also say that, you know, very many times throughout church history, uh, leaders who no longer pay attention to the Word of God, I mean, they do bring people who no longer pay attention to the Word of God. It's a tragedy. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has a great library of resources available to you at no cost? Visit backtothebible.ca and discover inspiring articles and blogs from Dr. John Newfeld and friends. Take the opportunity to sign up for our bi-monthly free Truth in Life magazine, featuring engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. There's so much more to discover. Search the free library of audio and video programs and learn about our mobile app and podcasts. Our desire is to make Bible teaching you can trust available in every way possible to every person possible without barrier. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, visit backtothebible.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425.